So it's, um, I don't know, it's like watching a TV show where um, an episode starts and it says, previously on whatever you were watching. Well, previously in Matthew, Jesus had learned that somebody who was in various ways quite close to him, John the Baptist, had been executed. And uh, not only was that sad, but there was, there, there's a sinister undertone to this. Because by this point in Jesus' career, he knows where this is headed. And so just like his, the relationship was complicated, friend, relative, uh, rabbi, to be honest, was executed, he knows this is where the story is going for him as well. So he's got that going on, plus just the grief of losing somebody that he cares about quite a bit. And yet, as he's pulling his disciples away, trying to get out away from the crowds to spend a little time just with them, the people have a ton of need. And so they figure out where Jesus is and they follow him. And instead of going, time out, guys, this is called a boundary, get out of my sight, I'm leaving, uh, which is what I would have done, he exhibits a tremendous amount of uh, emotional strength and instead meets them where they're at. And there's a lot of people, and um, at some point they need to be fed, and Jesus performs the very famous miracle of feeding of the 5,000. That's what happened last time. Now, if you noticed at the beginning of this reading, Jesus then sends his disciples away. So they get into a boat and go sailing um, across the, the Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. And then Jesus goes up to a mountain to pray. Um, so he gets his time alone with the Father in prayer. Matthew's very keen on pointing this out. It is um, not just like a, an interesting detail, but it's, just, it's a practice that Jesus engages in consistently. Um, if Jesus did it a lot, we probably should too, by the way, just as an aside. You get that one for free. And um, anytime like, Jesus is described as like going up, into a mountain to pray as uh, good readers of the New Testament, which means you're engaging with an ancient document, you got to start thinking, how would this have been heard by other people? And the obvious sort of parallel there is Moses. Moses goes up to the top of Mount Sinai where he encounters the presence of God. But he's not the only one. Elijah goes to the top, actually, of the same mountain, um, except he's not there to encounter God. He eventually encounters God, but he's kind of there to complain for a little while, um, which I kind of appreciate. But nevertheless, just little echoes of that should be happening for us. At some point, and we're given kind of a window of time, maybe like 3 to 5 a.m., uh, the disciples who are quite a ways across the Galilee um, encounter a storm. Now these, at least some of them, are professional fishermen. They know the sea. They know how to handle themselves in rough waters. 
Um, fishing would have been often done at night anyway, and they get kind of overwhelmed by this. So it's sort of odd to begin with. But then Jesus, um, he decides that, or, or realizes that his disciples need him. So he goes for a little walk. Now, a little bit of like, I don't know, myth busting. Depending on what you've heard over time, this is a very famous passage. Um, and it is so famous that there's a lizard named after it. Have you ever heard of the Jesus lizard? It just it runs really fast, and with that speed, it can run across, the, across water. When you have lizards named after a story in the Bible, it is safe to assume that that story is pretty well known. Um, I've seen a bumper sticker, I think it was in California, a bumper sticker that said, the next time you think you're perfect, try walking on water. Okay, I mean, it's clever. Um, okay, whatever. <laughs> and then the rest of the story is, of course, quite famous as well, but we'll get to that in a moment. Whenever you have uh, something that's quite famous like that, though, you, you're going to get a lot of speculation. Um, the same was actually true when Jesus fed the 5,000. There was a, uh, a British or Anglican scholar of kind of the last, I don't know, like a generation and a half ago named William Barclay, who said that when Jesus produced like the five loaves and two fish, then everyone else realized, well, he's being generous, so we should too, and they pulled out all the food that they had on them, thus it looked like a miracle. That was his explanation for why that happened. It's, there, it's absolute nonsense. There's nothing in the story to suggest that, uh, regardless. Um, but when you have famous miracle stories, people are going to come up with interesting explanations because we have lots of time on our hands. The same is true for this one. Uh, the, the theory goes that uh, what the disciples couldn't tell is that they were closer to the shore than they realized, and Jesus didn't walk on a on the water, he walked on a sandbar that was just beneath the water. It's dumb, but people have said this. Um, and I feel it's important to just at least put it out there. Um, Matthew was there. He was with seasoned professional fishermen. They know the water. And especially if you're in a boat on a body of water that you know quite well, you know where the sandbars are. So, most reasonable explanation, he just walked on water. Let's just leave it at that. Um, <clears throat> it's also very natural, I think, for the disciples to look out in the middle of a storm that is making them quite nervous, and they see somebody like a figure of a human being walking on the water. What would you think? I would think it's a ghost. <laughs> Or I ate tainted pork. The disciples would not have thought that, them being good, observant Jews. Um, thank you. That's funnier than people give it credit for. Um, but I, I don't want to make too much of this. But when you think you're seeing a ghost, you're in a situation where all bets are off. And things are starting to defy explanation. Uh, 
So they're freaking out about the, the, the storm. They're freaking out about apparently the, the Sea of Galilee is haunted. And then Peter, hearing this voice, said, don't be afraid, it is I. Peter, being the one who has poor impulse control, decides to say, hey, if it's you, tell me to get out of uh, come come to you. So Jesus says, come. And so Peter, Peter does. Takes a step out onto the water. Um, and then uh, in, in our translation, it says he sees the wind. Obviously, you can't see wind. Um, he sees the storm. And he gets nervous. And so he kind of freaks out for a moment and then starts sinking. And then Jesus grabs him and he says, why did you doubt? Now, there's a couple of ways to say doubt in Greek. This is not the usual way. There's, there's one verb, thalmazo. It means like, um, like doubt, with a, but with like a negative connotation. Uh, this is more like being of two minds. Like you have two thoughts on the matter and you don't know which one is going to kind of dominate. So for Peter, the obvious being like there is a raging storm and also I'm pretty sure people don't walk on water and there's water beneath me. And there's Jesus, the guy I know who I've kind of dedicated my life to following and he's walking on water. Those are two minds. His mind is split. And for some reason, I don't have a good explanation for this, he sinks. Why? Um, short answer is, I don't know. The long answer is, I have no idea. <clears throat> that moment when Jesus, or when Jesus, when Peter steps out of the boat and onto the water, though, is a very captivating image. And it also has made its way into our just language. If you find yourself, say, with an opportunity, business opportunity, an opportunity to move, an opportunity to change part of your life, fill in the blank. And you're kind of on that edge. In other words, you are of two minds. Stay here or go. And somebody, maybe somebody older, wiser, more experienced, kind of sees your situation and thinks the best way forward is to actually go. They might say... You want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. Um, because that image is so captivating. And it's such a good explanation for a whole lot of, of our experiences. Because I can guarantee you, at some point, just throwing away, disregarding where you've been up until now, at some point, you will be confronted with a moment of change where your life will not really be the same 
Should you make this decision? Or should you heed this call? Or should you choose to not fight against the, against the circumstances that are suggesting this is the way to go? There are lots of examples. Again, business opportunities, family decisions, directions, moving, uh, changing your habits, changing the way that you conduct your life. Sometimes these things are foisted onto you and you have no choice and that makes it deeply uncomfortable. I'm thinking of the diagnoses that will change the course of your life uh, and maybe not for the better. You will be confronted with the fact that you are sitting on the edge of the boat and there is water in front of you and you probably have to take a step. That is a deeply uncomfortable moment. It's uncomfortable even if it's exciting. I remember a year and a half, whenever it was that I accepted the call here, I don't remember. Um, just having that moment of, all right, it, when I call Marty and say, I'm accepting this call, everything changes. <laughs> um, man, it, it's, I mean, it's exciting, but it was uncomfortable. Why? Because change is scary. Change is hard. Those moments where, whether it be like just the audible call of God, or the gentle nudging of God's Spirit, or the just flowing of life circumstances, the natural change in entropy of your own health, or the health of those around you, like those things are hard because they're different. And even if the end result is good and better, but especially if you know the end result is just going to be hard, we don't like that. Peter didn't like it either. Uh, how do I know that? Because his mind was split. He he was just as conscious of the wind and the storm and the fact that he's on water and you don't do that as Jesus or as he was of Jesus standing there in front of him. So then that raises a very practical question, which is weird that I'm getting practical, but here we are. Um, what do you do? How do you handle that moment? Or those moments leading up to that moment where you've got to take that step? How do you manage that change? How do you learn to manage your own anxieties around it? How do you not split your mind? Um, for most of us, or many of us, it can be very encouraging or very um, 
strengthening to learn when you are confronted with that moment that if you look back over the course of your life, there's a good chance you've been through worse. Or you've been through different but equal. Once you get a little life experience under you, and you are willing to reflect on the things that you have been through, the things that God has taken you through, whether you went with Him arm in arm, or He dragged you kicking and screaming, which is my preferred route. You have gone through it, and you have been okay. Even if your mind had been split, it did not affect Jesus' ability to walk on water. There is something about not just the resiliency of human beings, but the resiliency of a life of faith that has given you the experience and strength to endure everything up until now. And so when called to take that next step, I feel confident in most situations to be able to encourage you with, you're going to be okay. But what if? This whole time, I've been doing kind of like a, I don't know, the preaching version of a sleight of hand. Because we would say uh, that, that Peter's big mistake and the reason why he starts sinking um, for or however the mechanics of that work, which I can't claim to understand, is that he did what? He took his mind off of Jesus and put it on either himself or the storm, most likely both. What have we been doing? What have I been doing this whole time? Been directing the, the focus on us. And our experience, our moment of being on the cusp of change and shifting life circumstances. Basically, I've been making the same mistake that, that Peter had this whole time. Because the ultimate answer, as Sunday school-ish or churchy as it sounds, is actually to keep your eyes on Jesus. But then that raises all kinds of other questions, like how do you keep your eyes on Jesus, either when you're staring down the barrel of a very scary diagnosis, or you've got some really big decisions to make that are going to change the course of your life, or you're just, I don't know, it's Sunday evening and you're doing dishes and you're bored and there's nothing going on. Like, what does it mean to keep your eyes on Jesus then? And we can talk about certain spiritual disciplines, reading your Bible, engaging in prayer, engaging in God's Word with those around you. Like, these are all good things. Do that. Your life will be better for it. But don't for a moment miss the forest for the trees. Because keeping your eyes on Jesus isn't necessarily about what he, you do. It's about what he does and did. That as a follower of Jesus, even like Peter in his own foot-in-the-mouth sort of way, is that you have been baptized in and brought into 
a different way of conceiving of what it means to be human. It begins with kind of that honesty that I myself am a broken person and I will have a tendency to break the things around me. But in that honesty, it's the recognition that this Jesus, who at the moment is walking on water, previously had gotten uh, the echoes of the suggestion of what's coming down the road for him. In other words, a grisly and brutal death. But by being part of that story, the story of this guy who was standing in front of Peter, walking on water, is that he takes on that for us. That all the ways that I have given into my own fears and I've had split minds, a split mind like Peter, whether I'm, I'm nervous about the steps that I need to take or there are changes in my life, changes to my habits that I need to make and I don't know if I can do them. There are decisions that are plaguing me and haunting me. If I'm on the cusp of some major life change that is scaring me, Why would I ever assume that Jesus isn't present with me in that? Because if our story is the story of not just a guy dying, but us dying, all of humanity, all of our darkness and sin and brokenness dying with him, and then that death being transformed into something new, that God's own spirit, God's self dwelling within us, is, is the core of who we are now as a human being and follower of Jesus, then why would I ever assume that in some really hard-to-understand way Jesus isn't right there with me? So sure, on the one hand, I can say, take, don't take your eyes off Jesus. Don't forget that He is always there with you. Yeah, that's true. Do that. But on the other hand, just like with Peter, Jesus is there regardless. No matter how many times he splits his mind, how many times he forgets. Because God has a tendency to take those he loves and drags them kicking and screaming or walks arm in arm with them as we go through whatever comes next. Because ultimately that's the story of death. Forgiveness, grace, redemption, and resurrection. Amen.